Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we discussed today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're discussing Ned 1, John 1, and Catelyn 1 of A Game of Thrones. But first, a quick announcement. We got microphones. Starting with episode 5, the audio quality is going to improve, so we wanted to let you know and hope you stick with us. Now, today's episode. Enjoy. All right. Hey. Hey, Dan. Hello. Hey, Michael. How are you doing today? Welcome back. That's right. Episode three of our little podcast. You know, I have a complaint to bring up with you right away. Yeah, go for it. You know, we don't, I don't get to read enough between these episodes. Like, like I find myself I know, reading. That's, uh, well, we, we didn't manage to record last week. That's true. So that's the big problem here. And I, I, I know part of that was the three well, at a time. Part of that was my fault, but it's just like I find myself like really hungry. I want to like kind of plow through this, and uh, the only way this will really work is we got to record once a day. Okay, okay, do that. But with that said, let's transition to our story. Now that we're into the flow of things, we have a full episode outside the prologue, and are going into our first, our second episode outside the prologue. Why don't you give us a little recap? Yeah, so I thought I thought, and especially like even including the prologue, it's been fun. So so I'm actually gonna speak a little out of out of order for a second. The last three Before. chapters that we just that I just read for this episode that we'll be talking about in a moment, I thought was this awesome sort of culmination because it really brought us to what's becoming what seems like this inciting incident. And in fact, we had actually like touched on this a little bit uh, with the thought that maybe something like this might be coming up, and it's cool to see it kind of coming to fruition. And I'll get to that in yeah, just a moment. Yeah, we've got some action finally. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it's been a lot of, you know, so far the 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 basically the six chapters plus prologue have been a lot of setting the stage. This is how I felt about it. Prologue was really, really fun. It brought it right away in the others, these sort of white walkers as we know them from the TV shows and things. We know that there is, you know, a magic going on and we know that with that is a threat. From there, we jump into the North, uh, you know, the, the kingdom of the North, if you will. Uh, Ned Stark, mm -hmm. and specifically from the view vantage point of his son, Bran, they're at an execution and you really get to meet this family of Starks uh, from the perspective mm -hmm. of a child looking up and revering this sort of like, like very honorable, honorable man. Mm -hmm. uh, Father figure. Father figure, you know, keeping it together. From there, we get a, a, the same, you know, people. Uh, but a new perspective, and now we get to to uh, uh, Caitlin. I think you pronounce it Catlin. Catlin. Yeah, Catlin. I usually say Catlin because she gets called Cat a lot. So yeah. Uh, so so Catlin, Ned Stark's wife, has now come out uh, and said, you know, hey, I'm here for you as well uh, for the things that you have to deal with. But we start to get a sense of, uh, you know, man, there's something might be amok in situations that are about to come. Catelyn has a lot more sort of presence and acceptance uh, around, you know, the the myths, the old Nan myths, if you will. What happens mm -hmm. beyond the wall, what a dire wolf might be, what omens might mean. She has a real connection to her faith, the old religions, the old ways. And I'm mixing, you know, different terms, right? Because I know Ned also is, you know, part of the even older ones or whatever it might be, but uh, yeah. less of a that sort of religious figure. But we find out from Catelyn that uh, two different pieces of news John Aaron is dead. Uh, he was the, and I don't know if we know it yet in that chapter or not, but the, the hand of the king and very close and was a uh -huh. real role model to Ned Stark, as well as the king with whom Ned is close, close friends, Robert Baratheon. Uh, and we also find out that the king and his entire retinue is going to be coming to the north. Uh, there's yeah. a lot that's about to happen. All right. For, from that Catelyn, brings us to 
today. Oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, Daniel, it does not because oh, no. there is there is Daenerys, and we meet the yeah. Targaryens. Uh, and so, and so we just have, and, 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 and to that point, you know, we have this sort of, I, I almost feel as a reader, as sort of this floating eyeball, kind of exploring this world and these people in their lives as it stands today. I know that yeah. there's this thing happening beyond the wall, this sort of magical threat that's coming. And now I'm getting to learn the lay of the land for the kingdom as it stands. And now I'm seeing the sort of ousted, what's left of the ousted king's family, the mad king's yeah. spawn of Daenerys and Viserys, Viserys, I think was the Viserys. Viserys? Say. Yeah, Viserys. Viserys uh, works too. I've actually heard both, but Viserys, I usually, you know, since I started with the show, I usually end up with the show pronunciation. So, uh, and we get to meet them, but they get now a pin put in their story. We know, so here's what we know so far, as of right now. We've got a, a nasty magical threat from above the wall, something that nobody's predicting, but they're starting to become an awareness for it. We then come and we meet the Stark family up in the north. They are a well-situated, well-sort-of-revered family. That was part of this takeover of, uh, you know, this 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 world, if you will, this kingdom with Robert Baratheon, who is now the king. In addition mm -hmm. to this, we also meet the ousted king uh, and, you know, the, the ousted king's son and daughter, uh, who is a vindictive, vicious sort, the son is at least. And he's basically yep. looking to raise an army by selling his sister uh, for an army to Khal Drogo and whatever Khal Drogo's like, like, like whole grouping is. And the Dothraki. Uh, yeah, the Dothraki. And that's where we left off at last episode. Is And so now we okay. now start the next three chapters uh, from Eddard's point of view, from Ned's point of view, as uh -huh. the King Robert Baratheon is arriving with his entire convoy uh, to the north for reasons we don't know. Uh, presumably because John Arryn has died and and now they're going to say hi. But it's clearly been a long, long time since since uh, they've they've seen each other, Ned and yeah. Robert I think Brett. we get it's been it's been over a month since uh, since we last were hanging with the characters. So we're mm -hmm. we're being dropped into the action here. The king is arriving. Everything's been arranged for them. Uh, and I just want to jump in and already interrupt your recap because uh, yeah. we really have your first concrete prediction that came right. Uh, yep. I don't know if you were gonna. Pull and I told you so here, but it's worth calling out. <laughs> uh, I was impressed with this. Uh, you said last time when we were talking that uh, maybe the king's sigil is something with antlers. I think you may have even said a stag at one point in that conversation. And right up front, we get Robert Baratheon. The Baratheons are the crowned stag, the crown, of course, because he's king. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that, that explains a little bit about why everybody was so nervous from the dead dire wolf with the antler in its neck with the antler and it's sort of i'll say too that something that jumped out at me at the very beginning of this chapter the crown stag as the sigil for baratheons but more so is even something that you had pointed out the last time that we talked this is not be you know it's not necessarily spoon fed it's not the most subtle thing of all time but it's also not and there it was and now i know this is a bad omen that and I, I, you know, I've started to become a little more sensitive since you pointed out during the last episode, uh, you know, hey, did you notice that the man with no ears who's being killed by Ned Stark is, is mm -hmm. uh, I forget his name, Glumly. Garrett. 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 Uh, but it's like, Glumly. oh, right. What is you he, know? a dwarf? <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah, they're all dwarfs, right? Uh, uh, yeah, when I imagine all of them. No, but but I just mean it as, <laughs> you know, I, what, what's interesting is even with that character who's being killed, Garrett, uh, or this, you know, the antler as the symbol. The fact is, is that as a reader, that 
these are easily skippable and missable things if you want them to be. The story will continue forward whether you see it or not. Yeah. It's fun to see it. It's fun to see that there are things that are being touched on that then come up very quickly, and I presume soon enough to not be so quickly, uh, you know, to kind of come back. And so it's interesting to, to see those things. But so yep. here we are. Uh, so I'm going to kick us off with with what what we just read for this uh, for this episode. Yeah, start uh, us off. Ned one. Ned one. Let's talk about Ned. So just like you were saying, the, it's been about a month. The king has arrived with his entire sort of grouping. There's a lot uh, that happens quite quickly early on where we're really meeting the king's immediate nuclear family, mostly the mm-hmm. Lannisters. Uh, something that was interesting to me is that there's only one Baratheon that's part of this group. There's many, many Lannisters. Um, While the Lannisters, there's a little bit of uh, chirping that happens from the Lannisters, not in a bad way, not in a critical way, but uh, you start to hear a little bit of who they are. The king has arrived, Robert Baratheon. He's being welcomed by his very, very close friend, Ned Stark. Uh, and all of a sudden, Cersei Lannister saying, do we really have, do you really have to go to the crypt right now? Do you have to... And it's clear that that there is not dissension and not even tension between the king and the queen as much as different personalities, different styles. And we see a little about that from uh, Jamie Lannister as well. So I'm going to slow you down a moment before yeah, we get ahead. to the crypt and to Cersei, because we get a ton of introductions here. And I just yeah. want to start it off with this. So, of course, we know already the Lannisters are here because Cersei, the queen, is a Lannister. Uh, and so you're right to note, you know, it's just interesting to see that the uh, the queen's family seems to occupy the court in a lot of ways. Uh, they are very ensconced. Uh, and so right from the top, we get Sir Jamie Lannister uh, and his little brother, the imp Ty- Tyrion Lannister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the two of them are described as very blonde. Uh, we also get a brief mention of the tall boy beside Jamie Lannister, who could only be the crown prince. Mm-hmm. And the mention of a guy named Sander Clegane who has a burned face. Uh, so, you know, I would note uh, it's not all Lannisters and there's not just one Baratheon. The crown prince is a Baratheon. He is Robert Baratheon's son. <laughs> right. uh, and so I uh, just, just wanted to point that out. We've got, uh, you know, the three kids who are Baratheons as well. Uh, although certainly there's a lot of Lannister pageantry surrounding them too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most important introduction that we get here is we finally meet the king. And the most important thing that Ned cannot stop thinking about is that he's fat as shit. Yeah, he's uh, fat. This guy, this guy used to be really hot. Uh, it's that, specifically it was... <laughs> described as uh, muscled like a maiden's fantasy, which I think is one of the most awkward descriptions ever. Uh, I'll tell you right now, if you ever get involved in, you know, the internet community surrounding Game of Thrones, which who knows if you ever will, uh, this description gets quoted all of the time and I can't stand it. It makes me cringe really hard. Uh, But regardless, uh, he has gained over 100 pounds, eight stones since Ned last saw him and he's grown a crappy, scraggly beard too. Uh, but he used to be really strong, really ripped, a great fighter, used a war hammer, which is pretty badass and sounds like a really cool way to fight. Uh, and then the other thing that I want to note, you know, just from the world building perspective, we get some backstory uh, inadvertently here on Theon as well. Yes. We learned yeah. that he's here. Balin Greyjoy's uh, so son. You skipped right over that. But so, you know, it's been uh, 15, 16 years since Robert's rebellion. But the last time Ned saw Robert wasn't actually then. It was in response to Bailing Greyjoy's rebellion. Uh, Bailing Greyjoy is the head seat 
the, the liege lord of the region called the Iron Islands, which uh, if you look at the map at the beginning of the book is off the west coast of Westeros. And he rebelled against the throne, declared himself king of the Iron Islands, said, we're not going to report to you anymore. Uh, and then Robert and Ned and a bunch of other people ganged up and went and kicked the crap out of him and ended that. Uh, and that was the last time he saw him. But as part of the deal to allow Balin Greyjoy you know, to surrender and come back into the realm, Theon uh, was taken as it says hostage and ward. So, you know, we have multiple mentions in the last chapter uh, or two chapters ago that we read before Danny of wards of Robert and Ned being wards of John Aaron, of uh, the great honor to Tywin Lannister, possibly taking John Aaron's son as a ward and, and of even being willing to do that. And so ward is really the positive thing. And it's really interesting to see this just brief offhand description of hostage and ward. You have on the one hand, there's a lot of honor to it. You're welcoming them in. There's a father figure is all of the instances we've heard about before. Ned and Robert looked at John as a father, uh, but at the same time, it's a hostage. Uh, at the end of the day, they are there so that if Balin Greyjoy rebels again, they will kill Theon. Uh, and so that is being held as a way to keep him in check. Uh, so it's an interesting dynamic, but it is just a brief side mention. I thought it was interesting to get this context of uh, Theon Greyjoy as that, you know, hostage and ward. And then to only a chapter or two earlier in the Daenerys chapter, you know, you have Viserys, you know, counting off who are, who, who, who's still out there, what families are still out there that are still sort of toasting him silently in the night. Uh, and the Greyjoys kind of come up as well. And I think that this is not a world of casual friendships. This is not a world of like, oh, yeah, why don't you send my, your child to come and summer with us here and as much as it is. No, these are political, you know, these are political families. They, everything is mm -hmm. political. Who owns what and controls where uh, becomes very, very important. And so I, nothing has led me to believe that that Balin Greyjoy is is such a, a committed uh, friend to the the Viserys, Daenerys, Targaryen, Targaryen, uh, Targaryen. Yeah. Targaryen uh, you know, sort of family. Uh, but nothing makes me think that they're so committed to the Starks and the Baratheons either at this point, if it's hostage slash ward. And uh, it's just interesting to see that sort of dynamic keep curving up. Okay. So, you know, you drawing that connection, which I think is great. And, and I had forgotten already that uh, one of the houses that Sarah's mentioned was Greyjoy's. I have two questions piggybacking on that. The first one you've already lightly answered. Do you think that there is a tie to the Targaryens in the Greyjoy Rebellion? I realize this is guessing, but, you know, just based off of what we had so far, do you think that maybe, you know, we were definitely encouraged to read Viserys' lines as bullshittery, right. uh, but now we've learned one of those houses he just listed rebelled against Robert within a couple years of Robert taking the throne. Is there anything to that? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I'm getting more and more of a sense that there is a duality of context all the time. And one side of that duality is stability, and the other side is instability. And much more than I think that they're like, like I'm getting again just from the little bit that we've read so far, much more than I think that there's some you know honor bound sense between any of these families except Stark and Robert Baratheon right now. I I really think that there seems to be a lot of opportunism. There seems to be a lot of like, right? Does it make sense that this is happening this way? Who's in charge right now? What's going on? So I don't know if the Greyjoys, you know, were were such devout, if their rebellion had anything to do with Viserys and the and the Targaryens by any means, or maybe it did. But I think that like it wouldn't surprise me to see that there, if there continues to be a uh, a question about you know who's my friend and who's not, 
as instability possibly starts to foment. Uh, I think everybody's going to be kind of out for themselves and they'll, they'll become best buds with whoever they think is going to help them achieve that. Yeah. Okay. That's an, that's an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. I'm not going to tell you whether you're right or wrong, but I, I, I would just point out, I guess, that that has a lot of implications for how we understand what Viserys is talking about. That, you know, mm. we saw him two weeks ago, last chapter, in a very weak position, weak material position. Uh, but maybe there's some, you know, whether or not they whisper of the true king in their cups, uh, if he can reach a stronger material position, then he very well might have a lot of devoted friends when oh. he comes back to claim his throne. Well, uh, so maybe there's a little more nuance to it than we had been thinking. I'll add too, you know, look, I mean, the books have been out for ages now and the TV shows have obviously come out. Like, like there's, it's not lost on me about what the future holds for say the, the Targaryen family to, to certain large sort of aspects. I'm curious to see if as Daenerys moves forward and, and as I already know, right from the TV shows, even just the commercials, you know, she's building an army how much of that army is is there because of, oh, we respect your father, your your dead and deceased father, and we're supporting this, or is it, is it like no, we we respect you and what your current power and abilities and and all of that. But but I have no idea that she's still twelve right now. I think <laughs> it's a yeah. we've got time to go. Yes. Okay. So the the other question I just wanted to ask you, and this is mm -hmm. just a, a brief note, but you're talking about you know these things are not honor bound. It's not an honor based system it's much more about the material conditions of it you know what what can i get from you and what can you get from me so from that perspective what was going on with john aaron hosting ned and robert you know what brought them together do you think that there was something uh nefarious going on in that sense i mean that's not really the impression well, we've gotten from ned as a person so far i'm actually really glad that you're asking this because i was going to ask you the same question so something that surprised me so really just oh, well, right now i'm not going to tell you that as the well no 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 i realize <laughs> that but i'm just saying for me as i was reading through this i became surprised by sort of more situational context that i that i realized i had no idea about previously we've heard that uh robert baratheon and ned stark grew up as wards to john aaron and were very close to him and were very tough i honestly when i had read that you know a chapter or two ago whenever that was i i thought they were orphans I thought that they right. they didn't have any family context. Now, Robert Baratheon has arrived to see his friend Ned Stark in the north, and they are exploring the crypt. And there is family after family of generation, you know, generation of generation of, of Stark family that's down here mm -hmm. in the crypt. And in fact, we learn about his brother. We learn about his sister. We learn about parents from the Stark side. And all of a sudden, I I, I have no idea why he was with Johnny. Right. Uh, how did they end up there? When did that friendship start? And I became very confused by it. It, it was, uh, and I don't think, yeah. I don't think I missed it. I, I don't think that they already told us why they were with John Aaron, although maybe they did a chapter or two ago and I'm not remembering. No, uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think we know that. I will say, I think you're picking up on some interesting ideas. You know, we, we do know that Ned's father at least was alive for some of the time he was with John Aaron. Cause we know we've learned in a moment, which we'll get to about the, the instigating, incident to Robert's Rebellion, which we've heard a little bit about before and uh, and we'll learn a little bit more about now. Uh, but it's an interesting idea. Where were the families? Were they out of the picture? Is that why they were there? Alternately, is was this some sort of a punishment for somebody's actions the same way that Theon 
is here as that, you know, was John Aaron serving in some role to the Targaryen throne mm. to keep them in check and it backfired. Uh, these are all possibilities that we just don't know about. And, and I just want you to think about in terms of what uh, could have been the instigating event, but we can leave it there. Let's go to the crypts. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, just like, like a lot of the, the things that we're even touching on are exactly what gets revealed as they go into the crypt. It becomes clear King Robert Baratheon is coming to visit the deceased love. Uh, and, and I'm trying to remember all the names here, right? But I think it's Liana, uh, Liana, mm -hmm. Liana. Uh, but basically we come into the crypt of this kingdom of the North of Stark's sort of like, like territorial uh, uh, capital, if you will. And this crypt is a low, it's a crypt. It's dark. It's scary. There's, there's dead bodies, but they really mm -hmm. go straight to Liana and Liana, I think is standing next to two other figures as well. One being Brandon, who was a brother, if I'm not mistaken. So we've got Ned, Brandon, yep. Liana. Uh, Brandon was killed, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. He was murdered uh, by order of the Mad King, uh, one of the, of the Targaryen Mad King. And then you have Liana, who, if I'm not mistaken, died from illness, was murdered. She died. Uh and I think there was a third person up there as well, who I don't remember who they were with. But basically, you have yeah. a lot of Robert Baratheon kind well, of paying respects. Yeah. The third person is Ned's dad, Rickard. So Rickard Stark, I would right? Just, That's right. Yeah. So I would, I would just point out again here that we get another two notes on Ned's children's names. We have a Bran and mm -hmm. we have a Rickard. Uh, it's not quite the same, but so, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting here. I actually always find this funny. This isn't, same thing happened like in the Harry Potter uh, post credits epilogue, uh, where you have the father of the family gets to name all of the children after their loved ones. And the mother seems to get no say on anything, despite them all knowing all the same people. Uh, but we now have four boys that Ned has as kids all four of which are named after people close to him. Uh, and I just thought that was interesting and worth noting. Um, nothing from Catelyn so far, but maybe that'll come up later. It's a, uh, and well, speaking of Catelyn too, because, you know, as we're talking about this sort of familial context, it's between John Aaron, who we've talked about a little bit already, and then this enormous Stark family, and then Robert Baratheon's clear love for Lyanna, the fact that Catelyn was actually meant to marry Brandon, you know Ned's Ned's brother. There's a lot of the odd man out in all of this conversation is the Lannisters. In it, you know, and I think Ned kind of speaks to it in an emotional sort of tone, plenty, where he's basically saying, "Man, these Lannisters, you know, they showed up late to the fight. They took a lot of power." There's conversation that starts happening about the, uh, I'm sorry, John John Aaron's son, uh, that with uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, Lisa, Lisa's son as well. Lisa, Catelyn's sister. Lisa. Lisa, whatever. Yeah. Uh, married, you know, married to John Aaron. Fantasy what? pronunciations. It's all, yeah, that's it's right. all normal gotta... names, just slightly different. <laughs> but but I bring it up only because, you know, Ned really balks at the idea of this child going to be with Tywin Lannister, who is the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the father of the, the father of the Lannister household, if you will, right now. And, you know, there's clearly some some negative sense that Ned has towards the Lannisters, which Robert Baratheon really doesn't seem to have at all. This is his family. He's married into them. This is what it feels almost a little bit like politics. Uh, you know, like, oh, this is what has to happen. And this, but but we're sticking by it. There's sort of an honor bound to that. So in the crypt, Ned Robert speaking, they go and pay their respects to the past Starks. And 
honestly, it moves into the request of the king. Uh, yeah. This, this is where, yeah. So let's really flesh out some of the history here first before we move on, because we get some interesting details uh, that we're really starting to flesh out a story of what happened 15 years ago, uh, piece by piece. So we've gotten some in previous episodes. We get some new additions here. Uh, Ned thinks on how Brandon, his older brother, died at age 20 when the Mad King strangled him. Uh, you referred to it as murder, and the, the chapter referred to it as murder, but I'm, I'm picking up on your phrasing here. You said murdered on the orders of the king, which is a very interesting phrasing because, well, if it's on the orders of the king, is it murder? Uh, that is the source of all legal authority. It's kind of tough to say something was illegal when the king did it. Uh, but he was strangled. It says that Rickard had to watch. Uh, and then we learned, like you mentioned, that Brandon was supposed to marry Catelyn soon afterwards uh, and died just before the wedding, uh, at which point she married Ned instead. And then we also learned that Lyanna was betrothed to Robert. Uh, so, you know, just noting here, we have some interesting uh, alliances being formed. Uh, I don't mean that in the literal sense, but ties being bound. And certainly from medieval history, we know that this was a very common approach to politics. But here we have the oldest son of the family that runs the North, Brandon Stark, being engaged to a daughter uh, of the family that runs the Riverlands. We have a daughter of the family that runs the North being engaged to uh, the eldest son, we believe, um, I don't. I think we've learned already that uh, that Robert's the eldest. Certainly, he's the king, so that would make sense. Uh, but the heir to the family that runs the Stormlands, the Baratheons, and then we also know, of course, that Catelyn's sister, Lysa, uh, another daughter from the Tullys, was uh, engaged and then married to John Arryn, the head of the Vale. So that is four of the major kingdoms that are now intermarrying with each other and forming those ties and those connections right in the lead up to this rebellion and this war. The last part that we learn about Ned's family backstory is just this discussion of Lyanna dying, like you mentioned. We don't really get any information about how she died, but we do know that Ned was there. And we have this scene uh, surrounded by blood and rose petals, um, very artistic, very visual in that sense. And we have Leanna insisting, promise me, Ned. And he did. Uh, and then Ned blacks out after that. He has no memory of what happened there, but mentions that Howland Reed, the little Kranigman, pulled him away from that scene of him cradling Leanna's dead body. Uh, and I just wanted to make a little note here, uh, both of that name, because it's an important one, but also I took the time this time to look up what a Kranig was because I did not know. I had just heard the phrase in this context. Did you have any idea? No, I had no idea. So it is a, a type of house uh, or building structure used in Scotland and Ireland, which is like on stilts in a bog, effectively. Uh, so it's like built on a wooden platform above shallow water. Uh, so I just thought that was fun and wanted to mention this here. And then the last Sorry, conversation Howland we Reed have, was a Kranigman? Yes, the little Kranigman is how Ned thinks of him. We don't know anything mm -hmm. else about Howland. Uh, it's just a, a reference to him in that way. Interesting. But then you also briefly mentioned this discussion about uh, John Aaron's son, also named Robert after Robert. Uh, mm -hmm. So that name is going around the kingdoms clearly. Uh, but, you know, Ned, or excuse me, Robert discusses how he was present 
for John dying. Uh, sickness burned right through him. He died very quickly. Uh, and then they discussed Lysa, who left the capital very quickly without telling anybody to go back to the Erie, which pissed Robert off because he had been in negotiations to send John Aaron's son, Robert, to live with Tywin Lannister. Uh, and Ned reacts very strongly to that, says you shouldn't be sending him to the Lannisters. Um, I liked this quote just from an emotional perspective. Some old wounds never truly heal and bleed again at the slightest word. I think anybody who's gone through a breakup uh, or any type of fight can uh, enjoy that little piece of imagery there. So, you know, this is this is a, a barely scabbed over wound between Ned and the Lannisters uh, from, from a decade earlier or two decades earlier. Uh, Ned offers to take the kid as ward instead of Tywin, uh, which Robert immediately dismisses because Tywin already agreed to, and that would be a slap in the face, uh, which seems fair. And then we get some conversation from Robert about how little Robert Aaron, uh, the six-year-old, is a little weak, sickly piece of shit and uh, isn't suited to do anything. So just, you know, a nice little moment, a fatherly moment from Robert the King here. And it doesn't stop there because the king is here to make two requests of his best friend, Ned. Uh, and this is what sort of like the whole scene in the crypt really comes to, which is saying, Ned, I need you to come down to King's Landing, come out of the north, come down to King's Landing, be the hand of the king for me. This was, we find out, the role that John Aaron had. Uh, this is, you know, what what the that sort of political position was. It's, it's very much, and I think uh, Ned even kind of quips, I think, to himself that, harder to be the hand of the king than the king himself. And I think Robert actually speaks to that and says, yep, what is it the king eats? And the, the hand of the king, I think, takes care of the shit. Um, so so it's, it's interesting you point that out. I had always thought of it as the hand takes care of the shit. Uh, and I did that because the show used almost the same line, but used the king eats and the hand wipes. Mm -hmm. uh, but I realized this time reading through that it may have meant the king eats and the hand takes the shit. Like that's yep. what it is, not takes like, like yep. grabs it, but rather actually sits on the toilet. And I feel like that's actually less effective than the show version. Like, <laughs> you know, taking a, taking well, a can be regardless, great. it's it's illustrative <laughs> in its language. Well, just uh, this is the two requests that the king has seems to have come to offer. One is become hand of the king, which does not seem to be lost on Ned Stark. Both how intense that is of an ask, as well as how impossible it is to say no. Uh, you know, he he tries a little bit saying, you sure you really want me? I'm not really. And Robert really seems decided. I am here to ask you this, period. Like that's, and the intention is you're going to say yes. Uh, and then the second thing is, is, and I think it said a little, a little bit more casually, but all of a sudden there's, there's an offer from the king saying, well, it's time for us to like solidify uh, our families. You know, Joffrey and Sansa, my son, Joffrey, your daughter, Sansa, they're basically the same age. Time to get them engaged to one another time. And Ned clearly kind of balks at this as well. I think some of his feelings about the Lannisters kind of come through on that, as well as the fact that he's, you know, he, he seems to be playing, and we saw a little bit about this in the chapter with Bran just a few chapters ago, but Ned is playing two roles at the same time. He is a politician, whether he likes it or not. He is the sort of lord of his domain, and uh, he is, you know, there to, to, to hold power and control power and share power. The other side is he's a father, and it seems like he's on the edge of wanting to really be retired. He's getting tired. His sons are almost at the age to kind of start taking things over. Almost at this moment, 
And uh, all of a sudden, these two, you know, sort of, you know, positions that he holds for himself as both that sort of political figure and and leader and head of family now have to come into conflict a little bit. And whether he likes it or not, uh, it's the po it's the political figure that that is the one that gets to control the land and and <laughs> kind of have all the nice things, the niceties, uh, mm -hmm. which means that he has to really, really stick through that. But that and that's really how how I found that the the chapter ended. So what do you think here? You know, we've got a lot of hesitation from Ned, and he asks for time to think things over, to discuss with Catelyn. Is there a possibility that Ned would say no here? Not in terms of a predictive sense, but, you know, how are you looking at this political context and this conversation? Is Ned fully trapped? Is there some avenue for him to get out of this if he doesn't want to do it? Is there some, you know, how much of a role does the friendship play versus the politics of it? And and how would that influence your thinking of this situation? Honestly, I, I go back to, to something I said just a few minutes ago, which is that sort of there are times of stability and times of instability. And I think that there's a sort of like more nuanced and granular sort of perspective here, which is, you know, the war ended, the takeover from the Mad King Targaryen ended, right? And Robert ended up on the throne and Ned's up there in the north. And I think for Ned, his life got really, really stable really fast. Yes, this is where he is with his family. And he's sort of just being this, this leader up in the north. I think Robert had to have a different life. Being the king is not easy. And in fact, there's a quote that I that I marked that I really love. Sitting on sitting on a throne is a thousand times harder than winning one. Uh and and I think that that while Ned may have been kind of getting more and more comfortable in the stability of his situation, that Robert's, Robert has had to be a king and, and kind of be faced with these things kind of straightforward. You know, in, in regards to what you're asking about. You know, could Ned say no? Honestly, I don't think so. And I think it kind of like comes that comes out even more in, in the following chapter or two. Uh, but, yeah. you know, this is, you know, part of him really thinks he can say no, you know, oh, the friendship. But but I, as a reader, again, I can't help but think of like, yeah, friendships are all well and great when there's a power dynamic until you disagree. And all of a sudden, at that point, the power dynamic really starts to rear its ugly head. I think that. Right. I love the writing about this conversation. You know, Ned is trying to find if there's any avenue to deflect it, say, do you really, are you sure? Do I don't know. And I think Robert's really clear. Yes, I am sure. This is not a discussion. Uh, and I think it's actually in the next chapter or two chapters from now that uh, that Catelyn turns around and says, this is why he came here. Robert Baratheon, King right. Robert Baratheon came up to the North because he was going to ask this. Now you didn't know it, but you have to respect it. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally fair. I want to pivot and, and just talk about a theme from this chapter uh, that is less on the political side and more on the personal. Uh, and that is specific to Robert. You know, I think these early chapters are very helpful in terms of giving, giving us a static image where we stand with characters right now. And I think the imagery in this chapter tells us a lot about who Robert is and, uh, and connects us to where he stands in life. You just mentioned the discussion, extended discussion he has about how much he hates being in charge. Uh, and and the responsibilities that come with that. And I think that there is a really wonderful contrast in this chapter between the trappings of wealth and power and the responsibilities of wealth and power. And that Robert is so indicative of the dissonance between those two things. We start off with this discussion of opulence and this show of wealth and riches from Robert. Uh, I really like this description we get from Ned in terms of contrasting the Robert of his youth with the Robert he sees now. Uh, in those days, the smell of leather and blood had clung to him, to Robert, like perfume. Now it was perfume that clung to him like perfume. <laughs> it's just such a nice little 
nice little dig. Uh, but you know, he's perfumed, he's fat and happy and eats and drinks everything. Cersei comes in a wheelhouse. That's, this is again, a quote, a huge double decked carriage of oiled oak and gilded metal pulled by 40 heavy draft horses too wide to pass through the castle gate. And then Robert himself says it out loud. You need to come south. We've got summer. I have no time for snow. I can't handle any of this. You need to come get a taste of summer before it flees. And he goes on this paragraph long description, poetic, very uh, full of imagery description of fruits in the south and how delicious they are. And, you know, he says everyone is fat and drunk and rich and the women don't wear very much clothing. And sometimes they get naked and hang out in the river below my castle. And, you know, it's all of these things. Listen to how great it is to be king. And you can really see through all of this that this is probably the side of it that Robert was thinking of when he was fighting. He was going out to war and, and killing and fucking and drinking and having a good time and thinking about when I'm in charge, I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. And that's going to be fantastic. And he's living that life now. And the flip side of all of this is the decay that's underneath it mm. because Robert was not prepared to take on that role. Robert's never been interested in taking on that role. Uh, and it says Ned could not help but notice that those pleasures were taking a toll on the king. The pleasures are killing him. They're making him fat. He's flushed. He can't walk down a flight of stairs. Uh, and, and he knows it. I'm planning to, Robert says, I'm planning to make you run the kingdom and fight the wars while I eat and drink and wench myself into an early grave. And he's saying this because of how much he hates the responsibilities. He wants the benefits, but he doesn't want to have to do anything for them. Uh, and there's a lot that rings true about what he says about how hard it is to rule. This is inc an incredibly complex job. But the way he talks about the job he has as a peacetime king is so telling. He talks about how, how horrible it is to be surrounded by people who want things from him. And then he lists the things they want from him and ends with justice. They come to the king looking for justice. How... How awful, how tiring is that that people would come to me for justice? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all about uh, how miserable it is for him to have to be in charge of this stuff. And so that contrast is really interesting. And a lot of what we see this chapter that really ties it all together is how much of it is tied up in those glory days, both in terms of looking back at them and how great they were, but also the trauma of them. Robert says himself, you know, in my dreams, I kill Rhaegar every night. He's still so wrapped up in the rebellion and the violence of it that he can't move past it and he can't move on to being a peacetime king. He thinks of himself as being completely unqualified to be a peacetime king. Mm -hmm. And we see it on Ned's side too. You know, the North freezes a man's laughter in his throat. He has this grim aspect to himself and he's still wrapped up in these memories of Leanna's death and of his family. Uh, I mean, to be fair, he's in the crypts right now. So there's reason for those to be top of mind. But the way that, that the old, uh, the 15 years ago events are so dominant for the characters in this chapter and seem to lay the groundwork for that dissonance between what it is they're doing and the things that they get enjoyment from in life, whether shallow or deeper, depending on who it is you're looking at, the way that those are barred by this trauma and the veil that they're looking through, I think really shown through. Maybe he's just a bad king. That's definitely an option. You know, it's funny too, because I think that, you know, again, from the, the TV shows as well, like I can, I can imagine Tywin Lannister as he starts to think plottingly towards a few different directions of, of what might make sense might be the most 
politically excited character that I have yet to meet. Uh, everybody else wants to retire, it feels like. Uh, and Viserys, you know, is is politically motivated, but in, in the most over-the-top fantastical kind of way, right? It's almost like a dream for him also. He's not, it doesn't seem so far like he's actually accomplished much, uh, you know, but it's it's like, I wonder how much of this book will become the fight to not have to be a king. <laughs> you know, I want to yeah. be in the position of it, but I don't think I should have to deal with the the politics of it and the whole, what does it mean to lead and all of these things and I don't know. It's interesting. Well, that's what uh, that's what he's bringing Ned in for. You know, let you take it over. Yeah, but Ned doesn't want it. Nobody right. wants it. Nobody wants it. Yeah, except for Viserys. Maybe we just bring him back and put him in charge. That'll that'll solve everybody's problem. Well, right. Like then, yeah. Except everybody wants the everybody wants the goods from winning, but nobody wants to be the leaders post winning. You know, it's right. like like I really like owning this land, and I really like having all the wenches that I can fucking to see. You know, exactly. but it's it's like. Ugh, but I have to defend the borders. I have to worry about political intrigue. I have to worry about things that nobody worries about, things past the wall. And, you know, like, where's that stability that we all thought we were fighting for? It makes me think of uh, a, a thing I saw years ago or read years ago, just about uh, how everybody bitches about commercials on TV. This is less relevant now in the age of streaming, but oh, right. there's so many commercials. I hate watching the commercials. And uh, this thing compared it to if you went to the grocery store and took out all the food and got to the checkout line, you're like, ugh, I love grocery shopping. I just hate paying for the groceries. Right. And uh, that's kind of what Robert and Ned, to a certain degree, are expressing right now. I mean, we've seen Ned take responsibility for his role as Lord, but what he wants to do is to stay in the North and stay with his family and stay home and not have to engage in those broader political contests. And what Robert wants to do is just, you know, live the life of luxury that being king has provided him, but let other people do everything uh, that is actually involved in running things. I wonder if we'll start to see a little bit more of a theme of like, if you're not expanding your borders, they're shrinking, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, you can want to sit quietly as much as you want. But if you're not if you're not actively in motion forward, there there are forces that are actively against you to to, to push you backwards. I know that this is actually a trope that that showed up in uh, like like stories of King Arthur and King Arthur's court. So much of those stories for the first half of those stories is what it means to become this king and and to build this this country. Uh, and then he finds his knights are getting fat. I mean, exactly what we're seeing here. You know, they're they're lazy. The things that make good knights are is fighting wars, and now that they've won yeah. their wars, they're not good knights anymore. And uh, and it's interesting. I mean, we're still. It's funny. We're 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 still only on the first fifty pages of this book, uh, but it seems like that's already starting to rear its head. And I'm I'm curious. You know, who who will will it be? Even Viserys, but who will become the real politician here? Who will be the one that says, "I understand this." I'm ready to play the game of politics. Who wins, who loses there? Yeah, I like that. So just to get into some some quick hit world building, uh, we got the the bigger story stories about the Greyjoy Baratheon and some of the stuff on Ned's family out of the way earlier. Um, I just want to point out here, we got some imagery that's going to come up a few times uh, that I wanted to call out here surrounding Rhaegar's death. So you'll remember this is the crown prince uh, from Under the Mad King. So it's Viserys and Daenerys's older brother. Um, and he was killed directly by Robert in one-on-one -on -one combat. Uh, and there's this, this very visual scene of the two of them circling each other on war ho horses, 
frustrating blows until Robert finally caves in his breastplate with the Warhammer, and that Rhaegar had this fancy armor uh, filled with rubies that scattered into the water of the, the trident where they were fighting. And uh, Ned remembers coming onto the scene to find members of both armies scattering through the, the water in the river trying to get the rubies, which I think is a really interesting callback to those class dynamics we got from the first chapter, that we have these two kings in, you know, wannabe kings uh, or future kings fighting against each other for these big, broad political goals. But then the people who follow either of them and are ostensibly pledged to this cause, scattering for the, the promise of material riches that's in front of them. Uh, the well, next that you call it I colorful. Have, I feel like the singular color that this that that George R. R. Martin has is red. Yeah, the only color that he seems to up. paint a lot with red. That's for sure. The werewolves, the blood, and now the rubies. Uh, it's definitely in a lot of places. The next one, we just get a, a nice description of the crypts themselves as they walk through. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine a crypt that's not creepy, but these creepy crypts lined with statues of the old lords of Winterfell, and before them, the kings in the north. Uh, and each has an iron longsword across its lap, many of them which have rusted away. And Ned thinks to himself, I wonder if that means those ghosts are free to roam the castle now. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's just descriptive imagery and, and sending a chill down our back. But, you know, I thought it was worth pointing out since we've already seen the dead come back to life so far. That, you know, maybe there's something to think about there. Uh, and then the last one I had was... Uh, just a, a brief mention, and we have this from the map uh, early on, which I don't know if you've looked closely at yet, but Robert in bitching about the trip up says that the North is as big as the other six kingdoms combined, but also remarked on it being pretty empty of people. Uh, so, you know, that just gives us some helpful context here. We really have an idea that Ned is in charge of this very rural kingdom, very thinly populated, but enormous in terms of land area kingdom. Uh, and we can certainly think as we go through the next few chapters on how that would impact him and, and his method of ruling and the experiences that he's had uh, and can draw on and learn from over the course of his life. Well, I guess that brings us to dinner. So, well, quickly before we get to dinner, I just wanted to ask you one thing on this. And this is part of the pitfalls of doing multiple chapters at once. Uh, I asked you last week uh, or last episode when we were talking through things, if you had any thoughts on how John Aaron died. And your reaction was, he got sick. They just told us that. Why are you even asking me this? Uh, and of course, we, we hear uh, in a couple of chapters, we, we get uh, some more information on that front. And we're going to get to that today. But I just wanted to know if you can remember, when you were reading this chapter, we, we once again get a description of John's death. The fever burned through him. He was fine one day, and then a week later, he was dead. Did that raise any alarm bells for you either, or were you still just coasting along? Yep, the guy died, he got sick and died, and we're moving on. It didn't raise alarm bells, and like you said, a chapter later, like we find out that it should have, uh, or not that it should have, but like there was other things afoot that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. But um, no, you know, it, it's it's always interesting reading books that take place not just in foreign lands, right, like a fantasy world, but this is a whole different era uh of like you know i don't know if they're using leeches and like just so you know they're they're, they're peeing on people mm -hmm. as like magical salves or whatever you know i who knows what the healthcare system's like uh and so yeah like like a, a fever burning through and in, in a week and things going fast it definitely was like it seemed like it was only if it was mentioned then it must mean something you know like like it, it right. assume it's not spurious um but again like there's no it, you know, something that's interesting here, again, is the fact that I'm reading these books so late. 
everything that we've read so far was very much part of the first two episodes of the first season uh and mm-hmm. which i saw uh you know there is i it, it's interesting to read this book with more knowledge than i've read and yet try to be in the book as somebody who doesn't have that knowledge you know so I know, you know, empirically, I know that the Lannisters have some ulterior motives that are about to start showing up, I'm sure. Uh, with that said, in the book, I have nothing about the Lannisters except Ned Stark's, you know, weird reservations that even he kind of like, like couches a little bit, you know, oh, okay, I don't really love the way that he did this, I don't that, you know, but there's nothing, the most ominous and and pointed image and signals so far is Robert Baratheon's sigil in the throat of Ned Stark's sigil. And, mm-hmm. and that has nothing to do with Lannisters. Do you know what I mean? Like that has no. nothing to do with anybody except Robert Baratheon. And so again, given like where we're at in the book right now, Robert Baratheon seems too oafish to be conspiratorial. He's yeah. fat. He wants to fuck. He's got a friend. You know, he also seems really confident in his control of his own court. And by that, I mean, shushing Cersei when she makes a comment and, and Jamie Lannister being aware that like Robert's shushing is enough for her to shush, to need to shush and, and all of that. But, but there's nothing espionage-ish at, uh, espionage uh, at, at this point. So, so okay. no, I, I know in like two chapters, Catelyn will, will reveal a little bit more. All right, let's go to dinner. Let's go to dinner. Uh, we're now on John chapter, John, which I think is his first chapter from his perspective, if I'm not mistaken. It is. John 1. This John is our 1. first one in John's head. There is a lot of uh, gala watching <laughs> that happens. I, I think it's important to note and stress John Snow is the bastard son up in Winterbelt. Uh, and because of that, he gets a little bit more freedom at a dinner like this. He's not part of the sort of prestigious convoy of elites, including his family or obviously the Baratheon family, the king. Um, but he gets to hang out sort of with the lower classes and kind of have a little bit more of a party time than anything else. He does, this chapter does start, I mean, it really felt like watching the Met Gala from Jon Snow's, you know, reporter point of view. He watched everybody mm-hmm. come in. He, there's really just a list of the fam- some of the family members that we've seen before, others that we haven't really seen. And it's fun to really hear Jon Snow's very particular perspective about everyone he's seeing. John seems to live this really interesting life straddling two sort of hemispheres of uh, prestige. One is he's part of the Stark family. Ned Stark is his dad. This is a a very powerful family and, 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 and very powerful position up in this area. At the same time, he's a bastard. He's a bastard with no last name, and he is not allowed to be accepted as part of this family, even though he is just by physically being there all the time. Uh, and and I think that offers a really fun uh, perspective that that he brings while he's watching everybody come in. It is it feels very the perfect balance of of reverence. These are the people in positions that I'll never have, and and look at how cool they are. Uh, even as he talks about Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer, uh, you know, and he, it, it, I mean, these are these are who he might want to aspire to be. At the same time, he doesn't have to put on the pomp and show that his brothers and sisters need to. Uh, he gets to mm-hmm. make these comments from somebody who will never have that much of an effect in the court. And, and I just thought that was really fun to kind of get those. Uh, it those is, but you're leaving out the number one best benefit that John gets. Gets to get drunk. 
He gets to get drunk. He's he get getting shit-faced. Yeah, that man is drinking. <laughs> I love that this is. Yeah, he's. He's. I think we heard before. He's fourteen years old, or it gets mentioned again sometimes here. Uh, this is really his first time just getting hammered. Oh yeah. Uh, and I think that that's a fun introduction to a chapter that, like you said, is very much so, and uh, or at least the first half of the chapter, observational. He is watching from afar, and it's not just that we get the lens of somebody who is on the cusp of that world, but not allowed in is that we get the lens from somebody who's on the cusp of that world, not allowed in and they're hammered. Uh, so I think that's you know, some he, helpful color there. He, he makes, he makes a really a fun comment that I like a lot, actually, when he's looking at Jamie Lannister, just a comment to himself, but, but I, I, I underline this. He's looking, John, John's watching everybody kind of march in and here's Jamie Lannister. And here's the quote, John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a King should look like. He thought to himself as the man passed. And I think this goes really well into things we were just talking about a moment ago. Robert Baratheon is fat. He just wants to fuck around. Ned Stark is aging. You know, he's ready to retire. And here's Jamie Lannister. And from very much the perspective of Jon Snow, but here's somebody who looks like a knight, or looks royal. He is fit. He is valiant looking. The he's man, Prince Charming. Yeah. And, and he killed the Mad King. You know, he he's also a hero very much in his own right. And I don't know if this- Well, it's interesting really... you say that because- uh... John specifically thinks that that people call him Kingslayer behind his back. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, this doesn't, I, I, you're right. You know, everything we've heard about the Mad King has been about how horrible he was. And uh, we have murder on his hands discussed last chapter, and clearly there was a rebellion against him. So it is interesting, uh, at least a little, a little, little thorn in the foot, if you will, that this doesn't seem to be something that he's being praised for. Well, uh, I'm reminded of, you know, I think it was a Monty Python sketch where the different like kings keep changing because of wars, but all the peasants have to deal with to them. It's just another king, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what what is honorable or not honorable is sort of the conversation of those that have to deal with it. But everybody else still has to pay taxes. Ugh, that Kingslayer, this right. Kingslayer, you're all Kingslayers if you you know if you're a new one right. showing up. That's an interesting point. Is is you know maybe he's looked at as a hero by the royalty class. Uh, the Neds and the Roberts of the world who hated the Mad King and rebelled against him, but the peasants don't particularly give a shit. We just have a guy who committed murder, uh, 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 committed uh, regicide, um, uh, and assassinated the king. So those could have very different connotations depending on who who they're coming from. Yeah, it's interesting too, just from a political, like almost a political science point of view. But it's just uh, the the more intimate you are in the courts, right? The more that you know people, the more it matters who's in charge. But the further away you are, the less it really matters. Uh, although, as I say right. that, you know, there's I, I wonder how much there's a difference between who we know as called the Mad King, who we know as the current king, Robert Baratheon, who we know as the next king, which is Joffrey. You know, and, mm -hmm. you know, is are all three of these the same to the peasants in the field or are some about to, you know, eventually poor choices lead to starvation? <laughs> you know, like, right. uh, well, no, I think that that's an interesting point, and a, and a huge theme of these books is about the material impact that these have on people. It doesn't necessarily translate to horse race politics mm -hmm. in that sense of, oh, the, the peasants love this guy and they hate that guy, uh, but it does have a real direct impact on how people live. Uh, and so, you know, from that perspective, maybe killing the Mad King led to upheaval led right. to problems, led to starvation or to war or whatever it may have been. And so, you know, no matter what the Mad King did wrong, that period of instability was bad for people. And maybe that's where the uh, 
detriment of it, the, the, the so, diss of it is coming from. I'm going to use this actually to move the said, chapter. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to run through the uh, observations we get from John here, because I think that's the core of what's happening. Uh, and just to make sure we introduce all the characters we get introduced to. Uh, we have heard about Joffrey before uh, and the littlest kid, Tommen. We learn here about the middle child, Marcella, uh, who is Robert and Cersei's daughter. Uh, we get John's observations that you already mentioned on the king, that he looks like shit. He is fat and sweaty, and John thinks he was already drunk when he got to the feast. Although it's a little hypocritical of John to be criticizing somebody for being drunk at this moment. Well, he's not uh, a king. Yeah, that's true. Fair point. Next, we get a discussion of Joffrey, who John does not like on spec. Uh, he thinks he kind of looks like a douche, and specifically is very salty that Joffrey is taller than Rob and John, despite being younger. We get the mention of the Queen's brothers, the Lion and the Imp. Uh, and I believe this is the first mention of the nicknames, uh, the Lion and the Imp. We get the reference to Jamie being called Kingslayer behind his back. And the Imp, of course, is the little brother Tyrion, uh, who I believe this is the first time we get a mention or a description. He's very ugly in a variety of ways and is a dwarf. And then the last one to enter the hall beyond all the people who we've met before is John's uncle, Benjen, who is an officer of the Night's Watch who has come down for the party. And that's sort of the point number one of the two, like, sort of plot points that seem to happen in this chapter. It's a conversation, John and Benjen, where basically it's a conversation of John saying, I'm ready to join the Night's Watch. Uh, You're skipping over the most important plot point of this chapter. Uh, John's direwolf ghost eats chicken. We yeah. have three pages on ghost eating a chicken, and I can't believe you would move past that. Anyway, moving past that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We should dwell on that. Uh, <laughs> ghost eats a chicken. He, In fact, there's another dog, I think, that tries to eat the chicken as well, to which uh, Ghost really raises his fur a little bit and says, no, thank you. Yeah. And I think yeah. that other dog Fuck goes off. away. And yeah. then, uh, All right. Yeah. Benjamin comes to John and they talk about the Night's Watch. <laughs> they do. And, you know, I think there's there's an interesting, you know, balance between these first few pages of the chapter of these sort of wide-eyed observations, almost childlike, of the, the royalty that's coming through and marching through and the pomp and pageantry, uh, followed by this, what, what feels like an existential crisis that John just has to live with all the time. I want to be honorable. I will never allow to be, be I will never be allowed to be honorable. You know, by virtue of my of my sort of status in life, like I can't do these things. And I think he sees what the Night Watch is designed to be. Uh, you know, this is a place for people to come and leave their baggage behind and come and, and live out that honor. Now, we in the preface have experienced that it's not the Night's Watch maybe isn't what John might project it to be. Well, what makes you say that? Well, mostly that it was talking about how sometimes the people that are there are there because they were arrested. Uh, you know, right. for stealing chickens. But and doesn't like that, that play into exactly what you were just talking about? That, you know, this is an opportunity to start over and to pursue honor that you may have otherwise lost. You know, telling it's not like there's a penal system, at least that we've heard about, where people are being sentenced to time in jail or rehabilitation of some form. Uh, this is presented as an option for people who have broken the law in some way. I mean, Will, the character we met in the prologue, was sent because he was a poacher, mm -hmm. which... Uh, quite the contrary from being morally tied up as a crime. I think it's a crime that, as we discussed, is just a, a function of the aristocracy putting fences around land and saying, you can't touch anything that's in here. Like that's all he did was go hunting in the wrong place. So from that perspective, 
I think the fact that they're criminals uh, exemplifies what John is talking about here, that, that this is somewhere for people to pursue honor outside of that regular structure that he is excluded from and that so many others are excluded from. Yeah, maybe from like a huge philosophical point of view, but I can only imagine that, <laughs> that the child of Ned Stark, who is a living as basically royalty up in the north in Winterfell, I don't think he's looking at the the the, the Night's Watch as you know the universal equalizer. I think he's seeing it as an opportunity to, you know, maybe show off a little bit of his royal plumage and have the opportunity to be. Uh, you know, like a, like a sir, like like a knight with a K, uh, you know, right. and, and I don't know if he necessarily expects it to be those that were arrested for poaching to be there as well. You know, like 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 there's not a lot of in in the preface of the three characters that we spend time with. Only one is really has like honor with a capital H and he's kind of mm -hmm. dummy. Like uh, that's, you know, yeah. sir, whatever his face is. Right. Like uh, Waymar Royce. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's almost like 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 honorable in a fantasy, you know, in, in like that, like a fairy tale sort of way, like, but, but it doesn't really seem to have his senses about him and in the ways that he might. And I just wonder, and, and I bring all of this up because John really is making a strong case to Benjen about, I want, I'm ready. This is where I see my life going. He is clearly very sensitive about the bastard status, you know, and I, I, I forget exactly. I think I had it highlighted, but Benjen, I think says, you know, why don't have a few bastards of your own <laughs> before you think of, of coming up here to which John really has a very strong emotional reaction. And I think starts to cry and basically says, I will, I'm not yeah. ever going to have a bastard. And, and I thought that was I just a really beautiful, out of the room on that. Yeah. A beautiful moment to sort of get this emotional sense of John. Here he is watching the pageantry. Here he is feeling good being drunk. Here he is feeling good eating. Here he is talking about being a powerful person, you know, in, in what's potentially a powerful place in the night's watch. But then it's him also being very clear that he understands exactly what his limitations are because of his sort of his status. And, uh, and I thought that was really, really interesting. I don't think yeah. though, from the conversation he has with Benjen, that much comes out of it. It's really just more of a conversation of like, I'm into this and Benjen saying, yeah. okay, maybe, uh, and, and yeah. we'll hear more of that in the next chapter. But, but that's so I wanna... big point one for me on this chapter. That is, I think, very fair. And I just want to touch on a couple of quick points here uh, to make sure we get them and get your thoughts on them. The first one is, is this conversation starts with Benjamin coming over to talk to John uh, and bringing up the wall, at which point John launches into his pre-prepared, thought about it, falling asleep at night all the time speech. Do you think Benjamin was shooting for this? Was this the goal? I mean, he certainly tries to talk him out of it or, or convince him to wait for a little while in a moment. Uh, I didn't think so, to be honest. <laughs> I thought it was much more of Benjen having a little bit of pride in what he as Benjen does, much more than like, hey, let me convince you. If only because my understanding of the relationship that Ned Stark has with the people around him is one saying, I will decide what's best for those around me. Uh, I can only imagine that if Benjen had some sort of, you know, agenda of trying to get Jon Snow up there that that Ned Stark might might take real offense to that and that that would be very negative right. and detrimental to Benjamin. That's fair. Uh, the next one that I wanted to talk about just ties into what you were talking about but they kind of beat around the bush on this a little bit but we get a reference to the Night's Watch vows that this is a celibate organization uh, which I uh, I really like the conversation they have there um, and that's why I'm focusing on it because Benjamin says you should father some bastards specifically because you need to know what it is you're giving up before you can commit to it. And uh, little virgin boy that you are uh, should uh, 
go get laid, have some sex, have some kids, have a family before you know what it means to swear off your family. And, uh, and I just think that's an interesting way of discussing it. Um, next, just briefly, I think it's worth mentioning that John observes in his drunkenness uh, and Benjamin has seen the same thing, that Ned is not having a good time. Uh, we can assume that he's probably brooding over the questions that the king asked, but also that Cersei is not having a good time. And we didn't really focus on this last chapter because there's just a brief mention of her saying, don't go down to the crypt and Jamie quieting her down and Robert telling her to fuck off. And then he does anyways. Uh, but I think it's worth noting that, you know, they got here and her husband said, yeah, I've been traveling for a month and a half. Let me go see my true love, my dead true love. Uh, and yeah, I can imagine how that would piss her off. Uh, and now she'd be sitting at the feast while he's, you know, drunk and having a blast and yelling at everybody and calling for songs. And she's just kind of pissed. And, uh, and he seems to either not notice it or not care, which I think is an interesting introduction to their dynamic. Yeah, the last one that I wanted to bring up which is just a little bit of world building. And then I have a, a nothing question for you because I'm curious, but John, when talking about how he wants to go to the Night's Watch to be honorable, brings up the young dragon, Baron Targaryen, uh, who was only 14 years old when he conquered Dorne. Uh, and then at least it sure seems from the discussion that we get there that he uh, lost it pretty quickly. So Dorne, I've mentioned before, is one of the Seven Kingdoms, Seven Kingdoms being the kingdoms that existed when they were unified, but it was not unified immediately. So Darren Targaryen is, you know, in the middle of the Targaryen dynasty. Uh, he tries to conquer it, and we get the discussion that he lost 10,000 men taking the place and another 50 trying to hold it. And I'm putting the emphasis on trying there because that's, that's the hint we get that it didn't stay part of the Seven Kingdoms. And we don't really know anything about them yet. So I just thought that was interesting. The question I have for you, how is Daron spelled in your book? Uh, let's see. I have it right here, actually. D-A-E-R-E-N. E-N. Okay. Yeah. Mine too. Interesting. His name later in the books and on everything online is Daron with an O. Uh, so I feel like this was something that shifted over the course of publication. And I kind of felt like, you know, I, I'm reading on an ebook. I figured they would have fixed it at some point in time, but I guess they did not. Uh, and I was just curious. So I wanted to highlight yeah. that. No, no. I like made sure to Google, like, is this the same character I'm thinking of? Cause I'm pretty sure it's spelled differently, but uh, regardless, we left off your recap before I interrupted to talk about a few things with John running out of the room crying like a little he baby. Runs out and cries. Uh, and then we get to plot point two of this chapter where John meets Tyrion Lannister. Uh, and they, they have a lovely tete And we meet Tyrion Lannister. It's our first time. Uh, we know we, he's been talked about. He was observed by John, you know, lying in the imp. Uh, Tyrion is the imp, he's a little dwarf, but honestly, you know, and it's funny, he's there as a dwarf and, and there's a few sort of physicalities about him. He's definitely an ugly guy, but everything about him reminds me of a, of a king's jester, the wit, if you will, somebody who's able to sort of see not just the pomp of the chess pieces, but the actual chess game that's going on. And like the sort he of- He makes the comparison himself even at one mm -hmm. point, he says- you know, years, generations of dwarves being allowed to say whatever they want to the people in front of them has left me with the same instinct to piss people off and not care about it. There's a, one of the, the privileges of being a court jester is having that ability to speak in a more free way and be protected while you do it, I, mm -hmm. you know, than, than maybe others. And, and it's only a chapter earlier that King, King Baratheon, King Robert Baratheon is turning to Ned Stark saying, 
you know, half the people around me agree with me no matter what I say, and the other half are lying to me all the time. And he doesn't bring up Tyrion specifically, nor is it necessarily even being thought about in that context. But here we have someone who is very, very straightforward, and in fact is very straightforward mm-hmm. with Jon Snow, and basically saying, like, don't, you know, you need to you need to learn to love yourself. Uh, and, and because it's your limitations that will both not only limit you, but also to help define you and help show you what your, your potential is that you can do in a much more realistic sense. And I thought it was such a fun foil and, and, and contrast between the sort of the pageantry of the dinner, the emotions of Jon Snow about being a bastard, and then getting the sort of really gift from God of a kind of conversation with somebody else who is, you know, uh, what's the term, uh, uh, not, not damaged, but but stigmatized, you know, someone else mm-hmm. who is really stigmatized uh, and getting that sort of insight. It's one of the more human conversations, I think, in the book so far. <laughs> yeah. Doing. No, I think that's a, a great way to point it out. And they really uh, connect, although John doesn't seem to realize it, over this shared sense of, of being an outsider. And as you're pointing out, you know, Tyrion is really leaning into how other people will see him. They'll see me as a dwarf. So I need to understand that and make it my armor, but also recognize the tools that it gives him in terms of being able to speak more straightforwardly. And, you know, I don't know if we have any dual culture in this society or anything like that. Uh, We haven't seen anything like that, of course, but you can imagine that not just the history of the King's Jester, but also just his physical stature lends Tyrion some ability to speak outside of the normal consequences. He's not going to get stabbed for being a dick to somebody, most likely. Uh, Although certainly he is at more risk of it since he'll be less uh, able to defend himself, we assume. Uh, But so it's it's interesting to see him embody that advice that he's giving here and really living up to it. And the way that that translates to the impact that they as outsiders can nonetheless have. He tells John, you know, all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. and all dwarves may be bastards, and yet not all bastards need to be dwarves. And then the chapter ends with this beautiful image of him walking back into the, back into the feast, casting a giant shadow across the yard uh, with the emphasis on giant. That, it's you not, know, look at how if you frame yourself. No, it's not the most subtle of imagery, but it's, it's a nice pin to put on what they were just talking about, that there are ways to have a big impact despite that outsider status. And like you just noted, there are really two different halves to this chapter, uh, two set pieces, the conversation with Benjamin and the conversation with Tyrion. And I think it does a really nice job linking them together because John, in particular, probably because he's drunk, is very outwardly struggling with his lack of status. Uh, and I think it's interesting that we start off with him thinking about how great it is that he doesn't have to sit up front with all the people where he can't get drunk and everybody's paying attention, uh, but his eyes are stinging him while he's thinking about this. And he, he does the thing where he says out loud, ah, stupid smoke. Like, no, you're crying. You're, you're starting to cry and you're trying to point out to everybody around you, no, I'm not crying. Like, I'm not crying. It's just my eyes are bothering me. Like, and then the chapter, the, the end point of this set piece with Benjamin is Benjamin saying, father, some bastards of your own. You know, you are a bastard, have some bastards. And he bursts into tears and runs out of the room, which is a horribly embarrassing thing for a 14-year-old to do in front of, uh, all their buddies. Uh, and, you know, so, so he goes from this struggle with his status or lack of status straight into this conversation where Tyrion is trying to provide advice from one outsider 
to another, to a fellow outsider of the system, here's how to deal with that. Here's how we can handle that. Uh, and so I just think that, that that's a nice way to tie those two set pieces together. I like that. No, I think that makes sense. And, and again, I also think that, that, you know, even through the end of this chapter, it's a lot of the stage being set. Uh, and and, you, know, and you, you feel free to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but, but not much really happens in this chapter. You know, it's more conversations about what could happen. John could go to the Night's Watch. You know, John could accept his status of a bastard in a more, you know, delightful way. Uh, you know, we get a sense of who Tyrion, you know, could be, but we don't, it's not really enough of a even leveled conversation. But regardless, all I mean is that like, uh, like it's it's a pretty short chapter uh, and, and yeah. more of sort of understanding a little bit more of Jon Snow, a little bit more of like what his relationship might be to the Night's Watch, but then that's, that really seems to tie it out as a chapter. Yeah. So I, I just have a couple of final notes on this. The first one I, I wanted to bring up uh, the Night's Watch being a celibate order again, uh, because this is somewhat of an odd choice for a martial garrison. You usually think of soldiers as having a bunch of sex and going after whores and whatever and all of that. We certainly get that imagery from Robert surrounding the rebellion. Uh, and even Ned went out and had a bastard while on tour. Uh, and I just wanted to mention, you know, I, I said up front that I was going to try and bring in some of the uh, fandom elements that I have consumed and engaged with. And I think this is a really interesting one. There's a guy named Stephen Atwell, who I plugged at the beginning, who is a historian who has talked a lot about the ways real world history tied into the world building of this. And he wrote an article about how there, there wasn't really, uh, at least to his knowledge or in terms of what he was thinking about, a direct analog for the Night's Watch being a celibate martial order, that this is kind of a unique thing to this world. Uh, and in particular, we have this imagery of the wall as Hadrian's Wall, which we talked about in the first episode, uh, you know, as, as the end of civilization, that that's where the Roman Empire ended uh, before the barbarian societies of, uh, of the Scots. And how... The Romans specifically took the opposite approach, that their soldiers were encouraged to fraternize with the local population uh, and find wives and have families and then end up settling in that area. And that was part of the Roman project of assimilation with the populations that they conquered. So it's interesting to see how George R. R. Martin decided to develop something brand new off of those historical influences and historical inspirations. Uh, and how maybe that's going to cause some problems or turn out to be the smarter decision down the road, that maybe there are ways in which this will protect the watch as a military order from some risks that the Romans didn't anticipate. Or maybe the Night's Watch is much more of a penal colony than it is a military organization. And, you know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, you get you get sent up there to, you know, this isn't the Romans, you know, sort of expanding their empire. This is a singular operation meant to hold the line. Uh, mm -hmm. much more than anything else. So, so who knows? Maybe it's yeah. goes in that opposite direction. Well, that's an interesting point because that brings me to the one question I had for you off of the back of this, which is we get Denjin showing up and he and Ned have a loving relationship, a brotherly relationship that we get snippets of. Uh, and we don't have any background on him, of him being a criminal or of being a Weimar Royce. We, we really know none of that. Uh, so do you have any thoughts on why Benjen joins the Night's Watch? Why would he opt into this and uh, forfeit family, forfeit women, all of these things that he's describing as the, the price of joining them? 
I'm going to be honest. I had that question about that. And my personal answer is bad writing. Okay. I'll be there in one moment. I'm going to need to wrap up in a second. It's dinner time. Okay. Uh, but mm. like I was saying, I think, I think it, my, my, my thought about it right now is bad writing. I think that, you know, this is uh and, and I don't know if this is necessarily like, like the real answer, right? Like, like I assume there's many oh, of these wow. books and, and all of this, but right now I, you know, there's given the way the night's watch in its little amount has been described so far. Uh, I would think that it would be much more of a caste system, right? You have the upper echelon of those, the Sir Waymer Rices, the Benjins, and the, the you know, those who are of, of honorable descent who are there as the lieutenants and, and the sort of captains and things. Uh, and then you have their infantry of, you know, those who are under arrest. <laughs> you know, this is, it is a prison <laughs> camp. Um, with that said, it doesn't seem like that, you know, right now it seems like everybody has a little bit more of an even keel of the handful of people that I've met from the, Sir, from the Night's Watch, uh, Sir Waymer Wright, Royce and Will and whatever his name is, Gertie, uh, Garrett. Garrett, you know, they're all, they're all sort of like in it together, it seems, and, and on a, on a more even level, um, uh, you know, so, so I don't know, I have no idea why Benjamin would go up there in the context of the situation of the world that, that we're sort of experiencing here, aside from, yeah, I, I don't know why he would go up there unless there was power and wealth to come with it, which usually comes with mm -hmm. fraternization. So, so I, I don't know, maybe there's some weird honor bound thing, you know, yeah. I, I think All there right. is, there is sort of this weird ambiguity about the honor of being part of the Night's Watch and the fact that it's dwindling, you know, the, right. the numbers are going down, that it's, it's you know, they're losing people left and right. And it's not that important of a place. The wall stood for years. Why should it wait? You know, why should we rush another day? Uh, yeah. So that's my thought about it to this extent. Okay. And so we finish the chapter from Jon Snow's, John, John 1, basically with his conversation with Tyrion. Uh, and Tyrion being this enigmatic jester of a dwarf who we don't go into too much detail about him but this sort of reaffirmation for Jon Snow to be himself accept your limitations because that's how others are going to see you you know you don't have to be limited but you need to be aware of how others are visualizing you and end of chapter end of chapter we go we go right into into Catelyn Catelyn too I think this is our first repeat chapter uh and so I'm going to pick up the recap here uh switch the roles for a moment but we immediately cut to after the feast, uh, or at least I assume it's after the feast. I don't know if we get that outright. Uh, but Catelyn and Ned have just finished fucking. Uh, we get yet another of George R. R. Martin's far too awkward descriptions of things that her loins still ached from the urgency of his lovemaking. Absolutely hate that. That's how uh, I feel. That's my Tinder profile status, actually. Uh, Waiting God, for my loins to ache after the passion of your lovemaking. Oh, God. Uh, that is terrifying. And I hope people stay away from you. Um, oh, they, they do. They do, Daniel. They do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So uh, but this is passionate Winterfell into, love. Yeah. Uh, we, we pivot from there. Ned gets up and is standing naked in front of the window. And we pivot into a conversation about the political ongoings. Ned starts us off by saying that he's going to tell Robert no, and Catelyn argues with him over that. And she makes some poignant political points here. She says, you know, Robert's a king. He's going to see it as a slight at first, and then a slight is going to turn into a threat. And Robert is going to be left wondering 
if Ned opposes him and opposes his rule and that that will put them and their family in danger. You know, Catelyn has struck me so far in the two chapters that we've had of her, including this one, as being like the most politically astute character as of yet. Everybody else seems to have this weird sensibility, whether it's King Robert Baratheon saying, you know, I just want to fuck. You know, you, I want. You I don't f- think King Robert is politically astute so far? No. No, I got to say, I think that he's lacking a little bit here. I think that Ned also, you know, Ned also, uh, you know, it's sort of his his reaction to Baratheon's, you know, King Robert Baratheon's request for, you know, coming to be uh, uh, hand of the king and his sort of like desire to be this aged this aged leader of the North who kind of retires into his sanctuary while his children take over. Like, I think a lot of people, and I think you were talking about this earlier, a lot of people are falling into this sort of like the motif of the winner, you know, like I am the victor here. And and Catelyn each time has been like, I'm going to approach the person I'm talking to in this case, Ned, both times, you know, I'm going to approach them with poise because they hold political power. I need to be hyper aware of the political context that that's going on here. And it, uh, I don't know. I think she's, she's just the smartest one in the room so far to me. Yeah. That's interesting. You said, because we get a note right now, uh, two beats in a row that kind of cut in opposite directions. The first is, you know, she points out or Ned reacts rather, uh, saying that, that he and Robert are like brothers uh, and insists on viewing it through that personal relationship. And she points out, you don't know Robert as well as you used to. You haven't seen him in a long time. He's clearly a different person. But then going in the opposite direction, it also comes out pretty immediately that Catelyn is also thinking about this somewhat selfishly. Uh, she mm. talks about, she admits, I mean, I think she's being honest and candid about it. She admits that it would be very cool for her to see her grandchildren take the throne through Sansa's marriage to Joffrey. Uh, and that is something that she's thinking about as well. So next, Ned, you know, he's really in his feelings throughout this entire conversation and gets sad there that Brandon isn't around to deal with this. Uh, he specifically says how he uh, he shouldn't have been the one to rule, that really this was Brandon's role as the eldest child, and he doesn't want that job. And that prompts some internal thinking from Catelyn about Brandon, who we know she was originally supposed to marry before he died, uh, and she thinks to herself how Brandon has always been a shadow between them uh, mm. ever since they got married. This clearly has become a loving relationship, but that initial start of a death leading or, or a, the death of his brother and her betrothed uh, precipitating their marriage. And then she immediately compares it to the other shadow in their relationship, John's mother, uh, who Ned won't tell her anything about, and uh, and she does not know. Who she, who she is, even, uh, you know, and we'll get back to this in a moment. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, I thought that this was like Ned's evasiveness about the mother was. It, 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 I was thinking about this in regards to something that you said just a moment ago uh, during John John two, right? Like his second John one, John two, John one. Regardless, the John chapter we've just been talking about, I. You know, but you would ask the question about like why is Benjen up in the Night's Watch? Like, like what's his connection to the Night's Watch, and 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 what is he doing there? And and I gotta say, I thought this was a really interesting, in the same type of tone that that why is Ned so evasive about this woman in the North? Like, part of me can't help but think that Robert Baratheon's kind of a bit of a braggart about the women that he's fucking. I don't think it's a secret between him and his wife, Cersei. You know, like the queen that he has. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and but why this evasiveness from Ned? And and it struck me as I, I bring it up in, in the same sentence as, as the Benjamin conversation we had just a moment ago, because it strikes me as odd. Why is this sort of very soldiery soldier of a man so, you know, evasive about this sort of like woman he had sex with? And, and you know, wh- why isn't it another notch on his belt? I don't know. It just struck yeah. me as, as odd the way that it was sort of portrayed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting you say that because we get such a contrast between Ned and Robert. We get such an emphasis that Ned is not the notch on your belt kind of guy. Uh, you know, and that he and he and Robert, you think of them as these two kids hanging out in the castle together. Robert is the big, loud, broy. I'm trying to have sex with everything and fight and drink and have as much fun as possible. And Ned seems to have been when they were younger and still be uh, the cold, quiet, elected version. Uh, and so, like, maybe it's just not his style. I'll say as a reader is just. It's aggravating to me. I want you, and I don't really want you to, but I want you to spoil it. Who the hell is yeah. John's mother? Why is she so important? Why is there such evasiveness? Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's it, it bothers me already. We're on page 50 of the book, and I can't believe yeah. that there is this secret being not just kept from Catelyn, but from me. <laughs> I'm bothered by it. So so let me, let me give the background here, and then I'm going to ask the question that you have to know is coming after you brought this up. Uh, but this this comes from later in the chapter, but I'm just going to skip ahead to it now. Later on, Maester Lewin brings up Jon Snow, and we get mm-hmm. into a conversation about what to do with him. And Catelyn has this internal series of thoughts about Jon's mother. Uh, and she specifically thinks back on Ned coming home from the war with this bastard in tow, bastard baby. Uh, and that at the time, it wasn't that big of a deal. She wasn't that upset about him cheating. This is kind of an, an expectation of soldiers. He goes right. off to war, and he's gone for years. He's got to do what he's got to do. Uh, but what really bothered her was Ned treating him as a son and bringing him home, you know, to to quote unquote court. He's not the king, but, you know, to, to putting him there and saying, this is my kid and I acknowledge him. I'm going to raise him as one of my own, that that made her look bad. And she even specifically thinks how much it bothered her that she had been with Rob in the south and only came north when Ned was coming north. And John had actually been at Winterfell before her and before uh, his older brother, the heir, and that really bothered her. And then she pivots to what she, uh, the only information she has about John's mother, which is that after they all got back to Winterfell, she heard a rumor going around about a woman named Ashara Dane. Uh, and we get a little bit of information about the Danes. Sir Arthur Dane was described as the deadliest of the King's Guard, uh, and he had a cool sword, uh, which we get referenced here. And a castle called Starfall, which was somewhere. Uh, and Ned killed Sir Arthur Dane, uh, despite Arthur Dane being the deadliest of the King's Guards. So that's a pretty big deal for Ned. And after he did so, he brought Arthur Dane's special sword back to Starfall, to his castle, where he supposedly met Ashara and slept with her and had a baby with her. Uh, but she asked Ned about it, and he got really upset. She says the one right. time she's ever been afraid of him. And he says this. He says, John is my blood, and that is all you need to know. And then she stopped hearing about the rumors again. I mean, oh, something makes me, me me think that, like, for all of Ned's poo-pooing of Catelyn's sort of religious integrity and faith, is that I wonder if there's something deeper that runs for him where, you know, there was some greater significance to this tryst that he had with such and such a woman. Because uh, I can't help but think that that he, as a human, is astute enough to 
know that being evasive about this woman makes her more of a threat with Catelyn than it would have been to just be yeah. like, oh yeah, whatever. You know, like, yeah, we, we, we fucked. Uh, so what do you, what do you mean by like, that there's something more to the trip? You know, like what that comes to mind, relationship or that there's some special significance to it? I think more on the significant side, I guess my mind kind of goes to that f- sort of fairy tale trope of, you know, y- you have, you've conquered the evil witch and with her child, with your child from her comes the blessing of a thousand kingdoms. Something that makes this bastard child more than a bastard child. Like, I, I think maybe the better way to say it is that it's still, it wouldn't surprise me, and I don't expect this, but it wouldn't surprise me to find out that Nin might have like five more bastard children, but they're not that significant to him. You know, like okay. for some reason, something about this this act, you know, this woman, Ashara, or or maybe not. I mean, he's just getting rid of rumors, right? Dispelling rumors between Catelyn and the and the staff. Uh, but but something feels like there's a significance, enough of a significance to bring home the child without its mother okay. into the arms of a waiting wife that was supposed to be his brother's. And I don't know. It's just uh, something okay. about it strikes me as a, a necessary significance. So I, I think you are. Uh, honing in on the fact that this is uh, a question you're supposed to be asking already. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, you know, you're, you're going to be allowed to have whatever opinions you have as we go. And if you change your thoughts, you're allowed to change them. But I have to ask you for the first of what I'm sure will be many times. Who is Jon Snow's mother? So I'm just going to, I'm just going to list out some names here. I'm going to put some women on the table. Uh, and of course, the last one is uh, option is as on any good test, none of the above. Sure. You know, somebody we haven't met yet, uh, somebody who doesn't even have a name, isn't important. That is one of the relevant options. But uh, I think we can cross Catlin off the list. Uh, yep. Safe to say it. Not <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd select that. That's fine. Yeah. So, so other women that we've heard about so far in this story, we've got Ashara Dane, who Catlin heard was the mm-hmm. mother. We have Cersei, the queen. Mm-hmm. We have Catelyn's sister, Lysa. Uh, Daenerys was a baby, so probably not her. Probably not. Uh, we have Ned's sister, Lyanna. We have, uh, I feel like I'm missing somebody. Well, let's I don't know. go with those, or none yeah. of the above. Well, I think it's got to be a Shara Dane. <laughs> if only right. for, for Ned's, uh, uh, you know, pussyfooting around it. <laughs> also yeah. So, okay. So, you know, he's poorly evading the question so that makes you suspicious yes right, that's reasonable that's where i'm, I'm decided it is 100 percent a shard all right great i'm gonna hold you to that forever all right good because i will never change my mind no matter what happens in the book so returning back to where we were when we got sidetracked by this as they're discussing this conversation they get a knock on the door from the guard that's outside they're both surprised by because Ned had said he didn't want to be disturbed, but it's Maester Lewin and he insists on coming in, which must mean that this is something important. And Maester Lewin came because he got a secret message, which was hidden in the bottom of a box holding a lens of some kind, maybe like a telescope or something. Uh, it was hidden in a hidden compartment. It wasn't given to him by anyone. Uh, it was just left outside the door to his rooms. Lewin brought it immediately because obviously this was important and is very suspicious and confusing, but the note is addressed to Catelyn, not Ned. And it's finally have, our inciting incident, Dan. Yes, we or have our, a, our, our beginning. The fireworks are starting to go off. Page 65, we're kicking it off. I love it. The note is for Catelyn. Uh, it was sent to her by her sister, Lysa, 
and was written in their secret language from childhood. So we've got multiple layers of hiding this here. And the reason why she had to hide it is hide it is because she says John Aaron was murdered by poison, specifically by the Lannisters and specifically by Cersei, the queen. Fucking Cersei. Yeah, you know, Ned's already been thinking about how much he doesn't like them. So uh, this is quite a moment. Uh, Catelyn immediately burns the note even before telling Ned and Maester Lewin what it said, because uh, she does not want to get caught with that, immediately turns to Ned and says, hey, this means I was right. You have to go be the hand of the king with Robert. Well, you know, something kind of interesting about this whole situation, and, and you just said it, I burned it before anybody else saw it. Secret language. Maybe Catelyn's the bad guy. Maybe she made up all of this. Or, uh, alternately, do you think maybe... If not made it up, maybe she is reading more into it than was there with yep. the hopes of, of giving Ned a push. We just had this conversation where she's trying to convince him to go south. One, saying no will put us in danger. But two, think about how cool it'll be for our daughter to be the queen someday. Is this, you know, you just talked about her being politically Yeah, well, that's, that's what I was manipulating Ned here. It's interesting because, again, as I, as I like reach back with my brain about the TV show episodes that I watched of this, right, when they came out, at like like the first season, there was no ambiguity about Catelyn's righteousness and Cersei's deviousness. Uh, but with that said, in the book so far, Catelyn, I have yet to really meet Cersei in the book, right? I've met her just, just very casually yeah. just saying hello, basically, right, as she passes through. I have no conversations with her yet, but I will say that Catelyn is now the most, like I was saying before, the most politically uh, active character in everything that I've read to this point. She clearly has motivations. She's actually thinking about in this chapter, right? Like in the conversation with Ned, which of the children should go with him down to the King's Landing? Yeah. Which should stay behind? She's clearly understanding and having this internal emotional dialogue of who she wants to remain, but what she understands is politically correct, right? Of course, Sansa has to marry Joffrey. Of course, you know, Rob Stark needs to stay up in the North and leave. And in no way is Jon Snow allowed to be here. But with all of that said, yeah. you know, leaving Jon Snow to the side for a second, the letter that she received, it's in a secret language. You know, it's, uh, you know, she's the only one who saw it. It gets burned. And now she's saying, this reaffirms everything I just told you. You know, right. I'm still, look at how much writer this makes me. And so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know her well enough to think of. All right. You're being suspicious. I like yeah, that. I'm being suspicious. So yeah. So Catelyn uh, says you have to go to investigate what happened to John Aaron. You have to go and protect Robert uh, from the Lannisters. Maester Lewin seconds her. Uh, he agrees with that analysis. Ned doesn't like the idea uh, and at one point says, my father went south once to answer the summons of a king and he never came home again. To which Lewin responds, a different time, a different king, which I think is a nice little note. Mm. It's clearly a reference to the Mad King. Uh, and you've got something else to work with here. You know, uh, and at that... this point, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say a lot of that, that, that little banter back and forth and you know, my father went once to the South and, you know, a different time, a different King, but, you know, it makes me think of the, in a weird way, there's just this, this sort of very stereotypical moment that happens in stories where the authentic experience is being sacrificed for the sort of fabricated need of, of what's happening. The authentic experience is, you know, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a, the father of the North. I own the North. I control the North. I'm a father mm -hmm. of children. I should stay in the North. 
It's like, no, 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 but you have to, you know, this times have changed and this, you have to kind of play with the game that's in front of you. And I can't help but think that there's this moment that Ned's facing being like, I just, I'm not here to play games anymore. I really want to just sort of stay here. And it's, it's unfortunately kind of forced upon him to, uh, to play this game. Yeah. And it takes on a tragic element too, that he is being left without an option. These events are happening to him, uh, Mm -hmm. both from the King coming all the way north to ask for it in a way that leaves him less options to get out of it, which he seems to realize from the first moment he gets asked. And then this note showing up at this time, uh, you know, he, he really doesn't have a way to avoid this choice that he doesn't want to want to take. But so faced with the insistence from both Lewin and Catelyn, Ned finally agrees, uh, at which point he prompts the conversation that you just alluded to in terms of, of which kids are going and which are staying. He says, Catelyn needs to stay in the North and can't come with him, which she doesn't like to hear. Rob is going to stay with her so that he can start learning to be the Lord and run the castle in his place. Mm-hmm. And she and Maester Lewin are supposed to help him get to that point where he's able to do it. And Rickon, as the baby, needs to stay with his mother. But the rest of the kids are going to come with him. Bran right. needs to come uh, because Joffrey and Rob are not getting along well. And Bran is a delight and will help everybody get along. Sansa will be there, obviously, because she is being betrothed to Joffrey. And Arya needs to learn some manners. And what better place to do that than the king's court? And make sure Bran doesn't climb on anything, Dan. Yeah. Make sure he doesn't climb. Because if I remember make one sure thing from climb. the first episode of the first season of Game of Thrones, it's not what Bran was climbing, but what he saw while he was climbing. All right. Well, let's not get too spoilery here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, assuming those events even happened in the books. We'll oh, yeah. Maybe maybe uh, the show threw me for a total loop. So Catelyn's upset and uh, and doesn't like having to be separated from her kids, but understands that this is the way it has to be. Uh, but at this point, Maester Lewin brings up Jon Snow. And Kat really loses her shit here. We already discussed her memories of first realizing that Ned had this bastard child and the whole frustration surrounding that. But we really see, in contrast with her politically astute maneuverings throughout the rest of this chapter, that she really white-hot rage. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in this. Uh, and, and she does not accept any of Ned's retorts, possible answers, why John should stay at Winterfell and, uh, and and why he can't come with him to King's Landing. Something that struck me is just as really proper about Catelyn. And I was saying it as politically astute earlier, but, you know, whether it's connected to even her like religious and faith connections, you know, that sort of like sense of a greater, you know, being like things greater than herself happening around her. But you know, it, it, with all of her scheming for what it what it is, right? Like, oh, yes, you need to go down to the south and, you know, command and be with the king for this reason or that reason. You know, it really seems like Jon Snow is a real uh, monkey wrench in, in her understanding of how things should be. You know, there's yeah. there's faces to keep appearances for. There's families who need to follow in the footsteps of their own families. There's a commitment that we have to honor, to honoring ourselves and our families and their roles. Now there's this other kid. Now there's this thing that makes no sense in my concept of the world. And I don't know, Catelyn could very much be a truly devious, scheming, you know, family-centric person. My family deserves to be taking over the North as I, you know, was married into it, blah, blah, blah. But another part of me, you know, thinks that maybe she's just naive. You know, maybe she doesn't understand the, the, the greater complexities of what this whole situation means and that honor can't be everything. You know, you have to make sacrifices. Well, I mean, 
Um, you're talking about these sacrifices and, we, and, and complexities to the situation. And we talked about certainly what Ned would be sacrificing. He feels his place is in the North, and this is where he's responsible. And he has this fear surrounding it uh, that's really emanating out of what happened to his father and brother. Um, but that's not the most rational of fears. I mean, Lewin points out the perfectly logical response. That was an entirely different situation. You had different players. You had different contexts. We don't know everything that surrounded all of that, but you know, we hear this description that his brother was murdered by the king, and and we got the description a couple from Catelyn one about uh, the king sending for Robert and Ned's heads. You know, here you have a situation where Ned is being asked to come south by a good friend to serve as the second most powerful person in the country. We have this note about a murder having been committed with the last hand, but beyond that, we don't know anything about why or whether Ned would be under the same threats. Like what, what do you think Kat is knowingly or unknowingly pushing Ned into that are causing these risks and causing these problems? Or is it just like a, a more of a sense you have? It's more of a sense, I suppose, but I'll also add that like, like so far, and again, it's hard for me to separate specifically what I've read versus, you know, the little bits of the TV show that I saw, most of which was occurring exactly at this moment. But I'll say that, you know, I'm getting this sense that, that you know, it, it, not just from the book, but even just like a life experience type of thing. We all think we know how large our world is, you know, oh, and if I'm being forced to leave what's comfortable to me, I have to go to the outskirts of my world. This is the edge of my world what Ned has to do now from the North going down to the South, the King and the responsibilities and Catelyn really pushing him and saying, I understand you have to go to the edge of your world. There are greater, the world is always much bigger than we, we understand for ourselves with an awareness from the TV show, you know, of the uprisings that are about to happen, you know, the upheavals that are about to happen mm -hmm. in many different ways that are sort of like, like to be unexpected. At the same time, there's also, I, I think that it's, it's interesting to see these characters, the sort of pomposity of, of, I think I know how big my world is and how far I need to go right. versus, wow, the world is about to become a whole different place than you ever expected. So right. I don't know. I, I, it really is much more of a sense than anything else right now. But I think everybody up until this point in the book so far, and, and including this point, they've all acted very much with a with a sense of certainty that may not be uh, appropriate. I am certain I know what this being called to be hand of the king is about i'm certain i understand you know what it means to be a leader what it means to hold this position and i can't help but think that things are about to get topsy-turvy soon enough it sounds like maybe you've read a book before how interesting yeah maybe maybe once or twice <laughs> so yeah so i mean we can re really round out the the recap here uh mm -hmm. because they have this conversation about john uh catlin points out you know why can't you bring him to court doesn't robert have a bunch of bastard children. Uh, and Ned correctly but stupidly points out that none of Robert's bastards have ever been seen at court because of Cersei. Of course, like a page ago, we learned that the real reason Catelyn's so bothered about this is because Ned has been parading John around as his mm. son before the court in Winterfell. So that really just needle in the eye right there. Uh, but at this point, Maester Lewin jumps in with the solution to everybody's problems. Uh, and says that Benjen came to him already and said John wants to join the Night's Watch and that he's going to speak to Ned about it. Uh, Catelyn thinks that this is a great idea, both because John doesn't have to stay with her and she doesn't have right. to convince him to go. But she also thinks, talk about being suspicious of people's motives, 
that there's a world in which John doesn't join the Night's Watch, does end up having a family, and that his kids end up challenging Rob's mm. kids for the succession of Winterfell. Which, you know, considering the relationship we've seen between Rob and John so far, feels like a remote possibility. Um, sure. I don't know. I, I, I feel reading this, I always feel like this is Catelyn looking for the worst in things here. And, and again, that this is a showcase of her lack of uh, logic when it comes to John. But, you know, maybe it goes the opposite direction, that she's the only one thinking ahead to these potential squabbles. Maybe. And I think we've already seen, you know, Viserys and even Daenerys, who very young or not even born yet to be a, like literally there during, you know, the awfulness that happened to them and their family are they're both to certain extents already, as we've seen, like both interested in reclaiming their position and what's owed to them. And I could, I could understand that in, in the context of the story so far of saying, man, maybe not Jon Snow, but his children or his children's children. Is this the enemy that we want to keep in our backyard? Yeah. So just a couple of little notes that I left out of the recap that are, yeah. I think are cool and worth pointing out. Uh, we hear a little bit about Maester Lewin's sleeves and chain, uh, which is about the order of maesters. And it's just, you know, yet another example, of, like I've said already, uh, this is the professor slash doctor slash scribe mm -hmm. of uh, the household. Uh, and I particularly like these gigantic sleeves that he tucks everything up to and including books up to hold on to. Uh, I briefly mentioned this, but Arthur Dane was called the Sword of the Morning, which is a pretty badass nickname in my opinion. <laughs> His castle was called Starfall. And the sword that we hear about actually isn't made out of Valyrian steel, which is the classic sword of the household material that we've heard about in the past. It is made out of a comet, which I think is cool. So that's where you get Starfall. Starfall, from. yeah. Yeah. And then the last one, since this is a chapter all about political intrigue, I think it's a good place for us to learn that Winterfell was built over hot springs. And those hot springs are used to warm the castle, and in particular, Tatlin's uh, bedchamber. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I just think it's cool to think about how important this probably was to the formation of political power in the North, in a world where you have these years-long winters you can't plant, you can't grow, and to have the area that can nonetheless stay warm and may lend itself to planting crops and growing new food during these winters that you can really imagine. I mean, we don't know their history, but you can imagine how that was such a source of power for the original kings of the north mm. uh, and lords of winter that we heard about in Ned's chapter that we discussed earlier this episode. Uh, so just something to think about how that might have influenced their relationships with their vassals to have that presence there. Hmm. Um, and of course, it ties so perfectly into the themes that we've been discussing through these first few episodes of the cold and the warmth and, and the north, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly north above the wall as being the, the emblem of cold and ice and snow, but the Starks and Ned in particular being this warm object in the middle of it that are of the cold, but also against the cold. And winter oh, seems to be a, a physical uh, manifestation of exactly that idea. Well, clearly so there's being more said, to read and explore. Let's yeah, I, uh, I actually just have a couple of final questions for you. Let's we do left it. Yeah. a lot of questions coming out of this. We already talked about Ashara Dane and John's mother, but... The other big note from this chapter, of course, is the note, uh, pun unintended, from Lysa. Do you buy it? Do you buy that that's what the note said? Do you buy that Lysa sent it? Do you buy that Cersei killed John Aaron? What are your thoughts on this so far? Yeah, I buy all of it, to be quite honest. Like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> uh, 
right. Know, so the suspicions earlier were just suspicions, but but odds are Catelyn's telling the truth in her sister. Exactly. Truth, yeah. Catelyn's has shown as a character just like a great integrity and sort of reverence to the positions that her husband fills and that she fills. You know, I think that there's there's something to be said about John. You know, now all of a sudden things that you've even asked questions about before are getting put into perspective. Hey, did, you know, did John Aaron's quick death and and quick demise, you know, did that raise any flags? Well, it didn't until somebody said he's murdered, at which point it's like, oh, wait a second. Don't forget a chapter ago. <laughs> like this yeah. was brought up in a, in a very clear way as well. You know, even Robert Baratheon kind of having his own thing. I think that there's clearly, even though I haven't gotten to meet a lot of Lannisters, clearly division between the sort of fraternity of Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark versus the rigidity of what seems to be this sort of perfect family of Lannisters and Lord knows what's going on there. And But with that said, yeah, right now, Catelyn is the one I'd probably trust the most as a chapter, like like as from a bias mm-hmm. per opinion, if only because she seems really accepting of her own biases. Uh, she clearly knows what she wants and doesn't want. So I'm hearing that note and I'm saying, yeah, murder is afoot. Okay. So, so uh, sorry, let me break that down into a couple of different pieces. Catelyn accurately gave over the contents of the message. That also probably means that it came from Lysa because the message was encoded in their secret code that we don't know anything about. But there's an additional speaker here, which is Lysa. We don't know anything about Lysa yet, other than that she's Kat's sister and her husband just died. Mm-hmm. No qualms there. No, I, mean, I think she. I don't know where she, they'd come from, but yeah, no, and, 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 and I'll, I'll also add too that that she gets the benefit of the relationship. Do you know what I mean? Like right now, Catelyn is the one with the most integrity of you know clear eyes, if if you will, uh, in my opinion, from what I've read so far. And so, Lysa, as her sister, and as just as revered by you know Ned, and you know the way that Robert Baratheon feels about her as well, just in terms of who this family is the Tullys, if you mm-hmm. will. Uh, yeah, she, she gets, she I gets will. a pass. Like, like I have no, I have okay. no concerns about Lysa or the Catelyn Tully family at this point. Everybody seems to be very regal and, and honorable as far as I can tell. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up next time. We're going to do two chapters instead of three. So we've got Aria one and brand two. Love and, it. uh, and that's what we're going to go with. And, uh, yeah, you finally get to read on it's been a couple weeks. It has. It has been a minute, but uh, excited. Excited to dive in. All right. Enjoy. All right. See you later. All right. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing a Game of Thrones, Aria 1, and Brand 2. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And thanks, as always, for listening.